You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. On today's episode, we're going to talk about something that I'm always really excited to talk about, which is spring scouting. It's something that I have done religiously for the past, I don't know, must be over 15 years at this point, ever since I really started to take hunting seriously and had mentors like you know Dan Infault that I could kind of glean this sort of information from and basically run with it and spend as much time in the woods as I could in the spring to really help try and learn as much as I could to be able to apply toward the fall. Now over the years I've definitely learned a lot about the type of information and the value that you can get from spring scouting but also maybe some of the things that I put a little bit too much stock into. Things that I, I took as gospel from my spring scouting that in hindsight I should have balanced more with most recent information coming from boots on the ground and or trail camera observational sits that sort of thing and so if spring scouting is something that you haven't really done a whole lot of historically hopefully throughout this episode I'm able to share some of the things that will help you maybe come into it with a cleaner thought process and be able to focus more specifically on things that are going to be the most value for you but also maybe not necessarily ignore but put less emphasis on some of the things that are less likely to be sure bets come this upcoming fall. Before we get started, as I'm sure most of you guys are well aware, I do work with both Tethered and Spartan Forge, but as opposed to just doing an ad roll at this point in time, I'll let those things come up if they come up organically in the episode, and we'll go ahead and dive right in. So when I was putting my notes together for this episode, I jotted down six things that I feel like you could really learn a lot about during spring scouting, and also six additional things that you either can't learn or maybe they're a little bit harder to decipher or they're not necessarily as sure of things when you're spring scouting. And so let's start with the things you can learn. Number one is you can learn the landscape. Regardless of what other variables you have, what deer are there this year, last year, the following year, what the food sources are going to be like, you can always learn what that lay of the land is. You can learn where there are thickets, there are pinch points, there are good bedding areas, there are big white oak trees. You you can learn all of these little bits and pieces and it can really serve as a foundation for all of the additional scouting you're going to be doing the upcoming fall, whether it's boots in the ground, trail camera information. You know, if you come October are starting to get a bunch of trail camera photos or maybe you're 
in an area where you can do some glassing, you can do some observation sits. You're getting these little bits and pieces, just snapshots of what deer might be doing. Then you can go and look at your maps and you can say, hey, I've, I've walked this area before. I am seeing the deer here, but they're likely coming from this other area. Maybe this one bedding area where I saw a bunch of cyanide when I spring scouted, you know, maybe that is not necessarily where those deer appear to be coming from. But you know what? There's this other place over here that had a good transition area. I guess it does make sense the way you look at the way that the wind goes through there. Maybe that's where those deer are bedding right now. And then you can make a game plan accordingly. I definitely think that knowing more about the lay of the land, regardless of what your hunting style is, is almost never going to hurt you. And it seems like a lot of times when I go on out-of-state trips, that's one of the pieces of information that I'm lacking. I can look at the maps and I can make my best assessments of what the landscape looks like based on what it looks like in the aerial photos, what it looks like on the topo maps. But unless I'm looking at something hyper-detailed, like a, a LiDAR elevation map uh, or even like a really recent leaf-off aerial imagery, sometimes it's still not the exact level of detail that you can get actually putting boots in the ground. Especially when it comes down to picking the exact tree to be in. There's been a lot of times on those out-of-state trips where I'll pick an area to, to go in and start scouting and I'll work my way in there. And as I get close to a place where I am starting to see deer sign, contextually things start to make sense and I'm looking to make my setup. A lot of times I'll sit there and, and think a little bit and then I'll go pick a tree to set up in and it might be the best spot that I can come up with at the time. But maybe unbeknownst to me, you know, if I would have gone down and walked 40 yards further, I might have found the actual right tree to be in. It could be something as simple as an additional layer of like an internal transition in that wood line that's causing those deer to hang up at a certain spot, you know, further back than I would have thought, especially in, in something like hill country where you're taking your best guess on where those deer might be coming from, where they might be bedded. Um, but there's a lot of variance as opposed to something like a cattail marsh where you look at the map and you're like, well, if a deer's going to be bedding off at this island, they're probably going to be bedded here, but they're probably not going to be bedded further out, right? It's a little bit easier to pinpoint depending on what that, that specific habitat looks like. But point being, if you're actually out there and able to put the boots on the ground, then you're able to figure out like, okay, if deer are using this area, then most likely they're going to hang up in this particular spot before they, you know, come out to, to feed on this oak flat or whatever. And so knowing that ahead of time, you're able to much more easily uh, place those locations. If you're hunting smaller acreage, then there's really no excuse not to just walk as much of that as you can and learn every inch of it because there's much less likelihood you're going to find yourself in a scenario where a deer is using the land in a way that you don't anticipate. You're much more likely to be able to figure it out even if things don't maybe make sense on the fly through the process of elimination and just thinking through what your observations are, balancing that off of what you know based on the landscape, you can more accurately figure out what's going on to make your next move. Where it becomes more difficult is when you have really big acreage to work with. Then learning the landscape from the standpoint of walking every inch of it just really isn't feasible. If you've got 10,000 acres, 20,000 acres, etc., I mean, that could take years and years of, you know, dark to dark weekend scouting trips in the spring to be able to to learn it to that degree. And so that's when I really just try and stick to the highest percentage spots by focusing on the transition areas, focusing on, you know, some of the, um, the points, the waterways, the clear cuts, 
any kind of tree transition type that you can see making an edge within the timber and also looking at it in context of, you know, the, the various parking lots that are around the area, hunter access trails, that sort of thing, and making your game plan to where you're walking a, a lot of high probability areas in as little amount of time as you can, and then just putting together as many of those types of days as you can, and eventually building up your library of spots that way. And so certainly there in big acreage pieces are going to be instances in which there are ways that deer use that landscape you would not have maybe anticipated. I see it almost every year where I learn a little bit more each and every time that I'm out in the woods, especially when I'm on a scouting trip, not necessarily always when I'm hunting, but if I go in an area and it may be an in-season trip, but you know, for the purpose of this episode, it can be a spring scouting trip. I'll go in and pick apart an area where maybe I saw deer using it and I really wanted to, I guess, figure out all the finite details of it. Let's say it's a 200 acre piece. Well, I'll just go through and then in that much smaller area, kind of walk every inch of that. And there's some of the key transition areas and and spots that you think would make sense. But every now and then you find one of those spots where it's like, man, you know, I just, I would not have guessed this by looking at the map. There's some little hitch in the landscape. There's some little internal edge. There's a tree falling down, um, that, makes the deer use the landscape in a a very specific way that is tougher to determine just by looking at it from an e-scouting standpoint. And that might be a really specific example that you can use on say, maybe like an early season hunt. If you know that a deer is bedded using that location, but even much more generally and broadly during the spring, the woods look very similar to what they look like back in November when you had the leaves fall off the trees and you can see everything. You know exactly what the deer can see as they're walking through the woods. You can look up in the treetops and, and be able to see how exposed you might be in certain trees. You can more easily see those travel corridors. The scrapes are a lot of times still visible before the, the spring greenish has come up and covered some of those scrapes up. The rubs are still pretty easy to see in the trees because you haven't got that new regrowth to kind of cover them up. And so Travel corridors and, and rut sign in particular are maybe the easiest to find. It's the easiest time of year to find that type of sign outside of actually being out there in November to find that sign. And really, I'd say it's a pretty close second. I don't feel like I'm giving up a whole lot in terms of rut sign when I'm looking at it in March compared to November. And so if you are the kind of guy who maybe has a lot of limited time, you know you're not going to have the time in September and October to you know, do a whole lot of bed hunting and set up on specific deer, you know, you're going to have kind of your main time and that two, three week rut period where the deer are most active and on their feet and you want to be able to capitalize that time as much as possible. Well, then spring scouting can be probably one of the best things that you can do because you're able to find that sign. You're able to look at the pinch points and you're able to find those scrape lines. You're able to find those community scrapes, look at the licking branches. You're able to see the rub lines you're able to look at these thickets where you're having doe groups bed and be able to connect the dots. You're able to look at those trees, exactly how they're going to look in November and be able to pick out the exact trees that you want to be in that are going to give you a good amount of cover. You're able to think about what the best wind directions are going to be. You know, I'm using Spartan Forge at that time to look up the most common wind directions for November. Maybe it's North, Northwest and straight South. 
And it's a mixture of those two most common wind directions. Well, you can think, okay, how can I access these spots? How can I get in there cleanly, you know, day after day, hunt it multiple times potentially during the rut for cruising deer. And so you're able to put in a, a fair bit of time here in March or April, you know, just depending on when your green up is and when the snow melts, ideally it's, you know, once the snow melts, but if you still have it cold enough for ice, if it's a marsh type spot, that's the best because it makes for easier walking. But if it's not a marshy area and you just have dry ground to work with and really any time between when the snow melts and the spring greenage really starts to come up, that's really prime time for being able to scout. You can put those hours in at that time frame, and then come November, you've pretty much got your sits almost pre-planned and you can get away with that a lot more than you could say on like early season type hunts. And we'll get into that a little bit more with the, you know, what can't you learn from their spring scouting, but rut hunting, definitely you can, you can really learn a lot and set yourself up pretty well by putting your boots on the ground in the off season. And a lot of that ties back to the landscape and just the visibility of that rut side. One of the bits of info that of course you can find in the off season is sheds. And while a lot of people will shed hunts, shed hunt specifically, and maybe we'll ask permission on places they know they're never going to be able to hunt, but maybe they can get shed hunting permission and then go out there and find antlers. Maybe it's adjacent to a place they can hunt. Maybe it's just for fun. Maybe they just like going and finding antlers and being able to spend some time out in the woods, cover some miles, you know, kind of kick off some of the dust after a long winter and get ready for turkey season. And, and it just allows you to do the outdoor thing. You know, that's great. But if you're looking to get some extra information out of that, and it is a place that you can hunt, then certainly that information will tell you what bucks had made it through at least the hunting seasons. doesn't necessarily guarantee they'll still be around in the fall. They can still get hit, hit by a car or whatever, but at least it gives you that piece of information that they made it through hunting season. And it also, in a lot of instances, might give you somewhat of an idea of what that deer was doing late season. Not always, right? If the food source was a certain food source in late December, early January, but then by the time the deer shed its antlers in late February or early March, maybe it shifted to something else. So it, it might not be exact, but it at least gives you a place to look. I know in certain areas that I've scouted and I found a lot of sheds, um, you know, the, the years hunting there after finding some of these sheds in areas, definitely I've been able to confirm in many instances, those deer are still using those areas during the hunting season. And so if I find sheds now in that particular public piece, I know that, Hey, I got another, you know, great opportunity to, to learn more about what that specific deer is doing that time of year. And he's probably bedded, you know, within a very close proximity to where I found that shed and I can kind of expand my search radius from there. So sheds definitely are a great piece of Intel that you can find. And, you know, I certainly like finding them as much as the next guy. Last year was sort of odd. I found more sheds during the hunting season than I did actually during the spring. Cause you know, generally speaking, I'm not searching for sheds in the spring. It's kind of a secondary thing, but I'll still happen to find them. You know, I might find a shed in a bed. I might find a shed on a travel corridor, um, but I'm generally not going on like private ag fields and getting permission and going and, and shed hunting out there. Maybe it's something I'll try this year in certain areas. I know it can obviously be pretty effective, uh, but I think a lot of the the places, at least in one of the pla- you know public pieces that comes to mind, I think a lot of those adjacent fields do get shed hunted, um, just from the people that I've talked to. So it's not necessarily, uh, you know, something that'll make or break a, a season, but 
definitely something to keep an eye out for. Another thing that you can find out a lot of good information on this time of year is the really obvious hunter sign. And there's kind of a mix, you know, certainly the last few years, there's been more and more people who have adopted more of a, I guess, a minimalist leave no trace type of a style, but there's still those guys that are out there leaving garbage, um, you know, wrappers, cans, scent wicks. I mean, scent wicks is always the big one, right? It seems like for whatever reason, I don't know if guys just in general don't care about leaving scent wicks in the woods or if it's just one of those things that's really easy for people to forget about. It seems like if you're going to find one piece of sign that indicates that a hunter was using an area, a lot of times it's that scent wick hanging in the branch. And maybe it's just because it's that white thing that stands out so much against that, you know, tan gray background of the early spring. That's probably part of it too. Cause a lot of times you'll find the scent wick and then you look up, okay, there's a tree stand up there or there's a, you know, bow pull up rope or screwing steps or whatever the case may be. Um, but it seems like those scent wicks are always one of the first things that catches your eye. And maybe there's guys who have left trail cameras out from the past year and maybe they left them running through late season and they haven't got a chance to go in and, and check them, um, and be able to, you know, swap batteries or, or do whatever they're going to do with them. So it gives you kind of an idea of where guys are spending time during the season. And a lot of times I find that to be really valuable information because if guys are leaving sign in areas as, as a generality, not necessarily a hard, fast rule, but generally speaking, I find that guys that leave sign of them hunting in places in the woods are usually hunting those areas somewhat frequently. They're not bouncing around quite as much. They're more likely than not going to be hunting the same area, maybe even the same tree over and over throughout the course of a season. And if they're spending that much time in a particular location, then I can generally assume that while there's certainly going to be times where they see deer coming through and they probably have success every now and then, it's not going to be an area that generally has the best odds. Maybe it's a good pinch point. And you know, that scenario, like I said, they're probably going to have success at some point in the season there, but there's a lot of instances in where it just becomes an area where deer, especially older deer, are going to start avoiding it during daylight hours. And so a lot of times I really pay attention to those types of areas, mark them, but also think about how might deer be able to use the, the knowledge that a guy is using this spot, you know, pretty consistently leaving a scent in the area. How are deer going to react to that presence and how might they adjust and use the landscape accordingly now? So the obvious hunter sign is definitely something that you should always you know, keep in mind and be able to take notes on whenever you find it. And then the last thing that I wanted to touch on, I did mention it a little bit ago, but I want to expand on it a little bit further because I think it is fairly important. And that is this time of year, because the woods do look so similar to what the woods look like in the fall, it's a really, really great time of the year to be able to go ahead and figure out exactly what trees you're going to hunt if you are going to set up in a tree during that time of year, you know, we, even as mobile hunters, a lot of times will really kind of stress the importance of, you know, being able to climb any tree and using the most recent information to be able to pick the best tree on the day of the hunt. And certainly there's a lot of that, but if you run into a lot of scenarios like I have, there's times when maybe that best tree that I picked on the day of the hunt wasn't ideal. Maybe I picked it because it was the best of bad options. And I always kind of had the thought as I'm up in one of those trees, whether it just had poor cover, 
uh, or whether it was maybe 60 yards away from the best location. I'm always kind of sitting in those trees thinking about, okay, in the off season, I definitely want to get back here and figure out a better setup location. And so then when you're out there in the spring, you got all the time in the world, you can walk wherever you want. There's no, I guess, sense of, of, uh, hesitancy for kicking deer out of their beds. And so you can really go in there and figure out what trees are going to give you the best cover. What trees are going to give you the best shot opportunity? What trails are the deer most likely going to take? They're going to give you the best shot opportunity coming out of, you know, a bedding area in a certain wind direction. Maybe you got the opportunity to do some, uh, some scent mapping and to be able to look at what the thermals are doing and, and what the wind's doing, go in there on a North wind, go in there on the South wind, throw some milkweed, climb up in a tree, see what the milkweed's doing. And because the, the trees and the amount of foliage in the trees is going to be so similar to what it's going to be like in the fall. If you can find a similar wind scenario, it's going to be very similar in terms of how that wind reacts now versus how that wind is going to react in the fall. And you might learn that, Hey, if I climb 25 feet up in this tree, you know, which is a good height, maybe I'm just high enough to where this specific wind direction, maybe the weather forecast says it's Northwest, but down in this little spot, maybe it acts more like a West, which would be bad, except for the fact that my scent bowl is just over the trail. and I'm generally going to be in the clear. You might be able to learn that specific amount of information that if you were just going in there blind, during a hunt in the fall, you might not know that you might just take your best guess and, and be wrong, maybe get busted. And so I oftentimes find that if there is an area that especially doesn't have a lot of good tree options, this can be super, super valuable. And maybe it's, it's that you determine the best setup is actually a ground sit. I run into that too, where I look at every tree possible and I think, man, this one would be a weak side shot. There's not really good back cover. I might get busted. This one's leaning super awkwardly in a certain direction. So I know I'm going to fidget more in that tree. Maybe it's not going to be as comfortable. You know, all these different excuses I can find as like a worst case for any given tree. You know, this one's 40 yards away. I don't want to set myself up for a shot that far. But if I get in this ground setup, then I have great pack cover. Maybe I got this deadfall as front cover and I'll be in the shade. Like there's all these little things that can kind of add up to to be able to say like maybe the ground setup makes the most sense in a any given scenario. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, I still prefer to be up in the tree. I feel like just generally speaking, that's going to give me my best opportunity of being able to get a clean shot off undetected, especially when filming comes into play. And so I really like to take that time of the year to be able to figure those setups out. And, you know, I think if it's a bigger tree, that's generally better because of the cover aspect. If there's more limbs in the tree, again, generally better because of the cover aspect. But you also have to be able to climb it and think, you know, in a best case scenario, I want to be able to see where the deer is coming from at a head position that's comfortable. So I'm not cranking my neck around to be able to check, you know, every five seconds if a deer's coming. And it's a location where I can, you know, quietly pick my bow up off the rack, be able to draw back for a strong side shot and take it. That's like best case scenario and anything less than that, you're kind of making compromises and you have time to think about, is this really going to be the best tree or is there better options? If there's a lot of trees, a lot of climbable trees around in a certain area, then it's not as big of a deal. When I go out of state in areas like, like there's an area in North Dakota where we go and it almost doesn't matter that much because I know there's a lot of 
like in the river bottom, a lot of trees that are somewhat easy to climb, maybe they're leaners, but you know, there's a lot of them and they're good diameter and good height. There's a lot of foliage usually when we go in the early season. There's another area where there's a lot of bur oak trees, a lot of good cover in bur oak trees. And so I'm generally not too worried about it. But then there's other areas where there's a lot of deadfall, clear cuts, and this would be like a, you know, Wisconsin spot where there's a lot of trees to look at. And it's like, I could climb that tree, but man, it's going to be hard to get drawn back without getting busted. And those types of areas definitely require a lot more forethought. And so I really like spending a lot of time there in the spring to be able to figure it out. So I have utmost confidence that come late October, come early November, I can sneak in there undetected, be able to climb up and be almost bulletproof in the spot. There's nothing better than that feeling of having deer come in 10, 15 yards, one right after another, and they have no idea you're there. So definitely some time this time of year is really well worth the effort. So now we'll take a little pivot. And instead of talking about a lot of the things that you can learn during spring scouting, let's talk about some things that either you can't learn or maybe there are things you can learn, but there's a little bit more variance to them. It's a little bit harder to decipher. And there's a lot of things in this category where you might fall in the trap of, you know, especially if you're new to spring scouting, putting too much weight on what you're finding this time of year, especially for hunts outside of the rut and allowing it to have too much influence on the actual day-to-day decision-making on your hunts in the fall. And so the biggest thing I think really there is just timing of the sign. If it's rut sign and it's obviously rut sign, then you know what time of year it was made. You might not know exactly, right? Maybe it's the first couple of days in November. Maybe it's mid-November. There's a little bit of variance there. And sometimes that sign gets reopened up kind of throughout that whole time period. But when it comes to early season or late season food sources, you might be able to find sign that a deer was, that deer were definitely using an area, feeding on a certain food source. But especially if it's a food source you're not ultra familiar with, it can be really hard to figure that out. Maybe it's a food source that they generally use kind of throughout the year. Maybe it's like a red oak where, you know, if you had a poor white oak season, not a lot of mass on the ground from white oaks, well, maybe those red oaks were used, you know, throughout the entire context of the season. But if they're more spread out, it's harder to pinpoint exactly, you know, when those deer were using that specific area. Uh, Maybe it was late October, maybe it was late November. Maybe it was early December before the snow really started to fall deep. And having food that's kind of spread out can make that challenging. If you have a really isolated white oak on the flip side, then you know that if that white oak tree is falling, at least here in the upper Midwest, that's going to be really, really early season to where like opening day, you might be able to go in there and it might just be raining acorns. Um, I've even found instances in where opening day in like Minnesota being like late September might have been too late and you kind of miss some of that key white oak early season and you had to kind of transition to okay what are they feeding on next uh, so if you're finding those food sources be honest about what time of year those food sources are most commonly used and if it's things like browse deer feed on browse all throughout the year and so it becomes tough to pinpoint exactly when that time of year was that the deer were using it because it's probably influenced by more than just the fact that they were feeding on browse there the amount of cover comes into play the amount of pressure comes into play if you're in an area and you see deer sign from the year past and there's evidence that they were feeding in the area on browse 
and maybe it's kind of wide open. Maybe it's a little bit closer to areas where there are some hunter presence. You, you know, the people use it and access it close to those areas. Well, maybe that's use it at a time of year that is outside of the hunting season. Maybe it's really early before they get pushed back into other areas. Maybe it's actually a place that they went back into and started feeding on after the hunting pressure really started to die down in late season. If you find an area where maybe there's not really a whole lot of rut sign back there, but you're finding deer browse sign, it's thicker, it's further back, it's in a tougher to get to area. Maybe that's late season sign. The deer have gotten pushed back there and they're in there that time of year feeding on, on that sort of thing. Uh, but the point is, it's tougher to just look at that sign and be able to say, okay, this is going to be a good spot. It's probably could be a good spot at some point throughout the year, but it's tougher to guarantee when that is. And one of the mistakes that I definitely fell into a lot uh, was going and doing my spring scouting and say like a cattail marsh and beds was, was the big thing, right? Going out and finding 30 beds in a day. And they're very discreet beds. A lot of times they're very obvious looking at the uh, aerial imagery on transition lines, on points leading out into the cattails, on little, you know, inside turns and, and things like that, brushy areas, red osier dogwood, that sort of thing. But I'd find these beds and I would just assume that a deer is bedding there almost like every day of the year, right? Like, oh, I found like a great buck bed. I'm going to go in there in early season and he's going to come out and I'm going to kill him. But maybe that's a bed he doesn't use until later in the year. Maybe it's a bed that he only uses once the white oaks, you know, 400 yards away are, are done falling. Maybe it's a rut bed. Like there's a lot of unknowns, especially when it comes into context of those specific beds. Maybe it's a bed that he uses, you know, one out of every four times that he beds down in an area. Maybe it's a wind specific bed. Um, and so learning where some of those beds are in, in some instances for me, it's almost kind of like the landscape piece. It's like, okay, I learned this basic information, but I still need to look at that location in the context of all the other things that are going on during the fall at the specific time that I'm going to be hunting to be able to figure out, is that something I want to be able to actually make a play on? Another thing that's tougher to decipher during your early spring scouting is what is the deer outlook going to be like next year? Maybe you find a ton of deer sign in the woods. Maybe you don't find hardly any, but that doesn't necessarily mean that next year is going to be a repeat. I remember an area in Minnesota that we scouted and hunted one year and we found it during the season. It was like mid October, I think when we found it and it was just obliterated with sign. There was scrapes everywhere. There were rubs popping up, you know, kind of preparation for that, that pre-rut time period. And I hunted it two or three times. And each time I saw bucks and there was deer moving around just kind of throughout this peninsula. And it was great. And we went back there the following year, just kind of assuming it would be similar. And there just was not the sign, um, uh, for whatever reason. I don't know if, if some of the bucks had gotten killed there, if it was just strictly the increase in pressure and a lot of those deer shifted, we didn't spend enough time back there to kind of refigure it back out. Uh, we just went and hunted different stuff in different States. But point being, if we had gone in there, Justin's, you know, the early spring scouting that following year, that place still would have been torn up. And we would have just been like, man, this is, this is it. Like this place looks amazing and put a whole lot of stock into it only to be kind of disappointed 
in that it just didn't look the same afterwards. My suspicion is that there was a certain amount of, you know, somewhat older deer in that area, three and a half year old bucks or bigger. They were competing in that same area. And I think that was why a lot of that sign was getting laid down that particular year. Well, during the shotgun season, which again in Minnesota is like the first weekend of November and spreads on over the next couple of weeks, I would imagine that one or both of them maybe got killed. And so then that following year, there just wasn't the sign because there wasn't the deer there making the sign. I think it could be literally something as simple as that. In states where disease is more of an issue, then certainly you could have a bout of EHD, you know, come in and, and that that deer outlook looks totally different the following year than what, you know, the spring scouting may have in- indicated the year prior. So you have to keep that into consideration, certainly. And even on the topic of specific bucks, if you find those sheds, then that tells you you got through the season. But if you don't find the sheds, I mean, there's really no guarantees that some of the deer that you saw last year, or maybe that you've been chasing last year, you're still going to see their sign when you go and spring scout, but there's no guarantee that those deer are still going to be around the following year. You can just kind of, you know, cross your fingers and hope, but that's definitely a piece of information that is very uncertain. And when it comes to hunting pressure and just generally kind of this newer, newer breed of hunters uh, in terms of the popularity of mobile hunting, the popularity of saddle hunting, uh, it's really tough to gauge what next year's pressure is going to be like in some of the travel states, the popular areas in like Nebraska or North Dakota, especially the states that have those earlier seasons that open up before a lot of the key Midwestern states. I've noticed that over the last three years or so that we've gone out to those places, the pressure has steadily increased a pretty substantial amount year after year. You know, the first year we went out, there was few other people, and then maybe it doubled by the following year, and then it maybe almost tripled the year after that. Uh, but those things are sick, cyclical, and they can vary a lot, even depending on the specific pieces of public land. Where I hunt locally, sometimes there's areas where you get you know a whole ton of guys there, and perpetually there's guys there every year, the same guys. And there's other spots that don't get hit as hard. And maybe some of those areas that have been getting pounded, maybe the guys have finally gotten fed up. There's so many hunters, they're not satisfied with their hunting experience. Maybe that's the year they decide to go try someplace else. And now, the following year, there's going to be less hunting pressure than you would have anticipated. You're not going to be able to figure that out spring scouting. That's something you can only figure out when you're actually out there and counting the number of vehicles and and actually spending some time out there in the woods. And when it comes to some of the, you know, the, the mobile hunting crowd, generally not leaving as much sign. Occasionally you can find, you know, little uh, marks in the bark from climbing sticks or maybe the guy's using a, a climber. But if you don't find that piece of information, which is kind of hard to find, or if those guys don't have any running trail cameras, it seems like they're generally less likely to leave things in the woods. Um, things like scent wicks, things like garbage. I think a lot of times, and this is not necessarily a knock on, on gun hunters, but I think because there's more of them in the woods and, and they're only spending less time, you know, throughout the course of their season, they're not as invested as other groups are. I think that's probably where you see a lot of the um, the trash come from, but that's that's probably not strictly the case. With the more, I guess, modernized mobile hunting group, it seems like everybody's got, you know, the right pack who's got uh, a spot for this, a spot for that. Everything has been 
you know, meticulously grooved in the off season to, to make sure they're not carrying additional things that aren't necessary and they're carrying just the, the items that they need. They're taking it in with them. They're taking it out when they leave. And so you're just not generally going to find as much stuff. You're less likely to, to have things that get misplaced or lost in the woods. And so there's areas you might go in and spring scout and it maybe looks like a great spot and you don't think you see any under pressure, but maybe there's a guy who was hunting back there five, six times that past season. He just didn't leave enough sign that you were able to pick up on it. And so that's something that it's just kind of like a, a known thing you have to be aware of is that you're not going to be able to necessarily find evidence that people have hunted in a certain spot. Again, that's one of those pieces of information that could change year to year. And it's generally going to be best to figure it out when you're actually out there on the fly. You're out there hunting, you're talking to people in the parking lots, that sort of thing. And then for food sources that are either cyclical in nature or they just vary a whole bunch, like if you're in ag country and you have crop rotations, maybe you can talk to the farmers and see what the crop rotation is going to be like because that can make a big difference in how that land hunts. Uh, but maybe it's something like, you know, you got white oak trees, red oak trees. Maybe you're in a, the Northeast. I know they have beech trees. Like there's mass producing trees that depending on not just the cyclical nature of the crop itself, the mast crop, it's, it's also very dependent on the weather and the amount of rain that you got, that sort of thing. You might not be able to guarantee this time of year what the actual outlook is going to be like come this fall. Is it going to be a good acorn crop? Is it not going to be a good acorn crop? And so I always think it's a good idea to mark isolated food sources for their potential. Like if I'm scouting an island in a cattail marsh that has good bedding cover around it and there's one big isolated white oak tree up on the you know, most high elevation of that little island, you better believe I'm going to mark a waypoint there and I'm going to be going in there and checking it early season. But I'm also not putting too much stock into it. If I go in there early season and it's just not producing that much, then I'll move on pretty quickly. So I think that covers really everything. We, we hit on you know some of the high points and the low points of spring scouting. And really the point that I wanted to get across is trying to, to share some of the, the learnings that I've had over the years to share some of the things that have worked well and some of the things that I know have not worked well and I wish I would have known at the time about where to to really put my effort and time in and what Intel is going to be the most valuable for me this upcoming fall and what things I don't want to put too much stock into because there's going to be too many variables in the season to where I'm going to want to more rely on the actual in the season information as it arrives and just kind of bounce back and forth off of some of the landscape and, and other items that I've learned. So if any of you have questions, feel free to reach out scouting and spring scouting in particular is one of those things that I really enjoy doing and so I'm more than willing to chat and compare notes and try and help out anywhere I can. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes and if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.